I wonder, what do, you, what do you think of when you see that word, neighbor? You might think of, like, maybe one that you've got right now, one that you grew up around. Um, when I was a little kid, I lived in uh, Lafayette area, and uh, I, was, I was about second grade, and uh, we, had, we had neighbors as well. Our, our neighbor who lived right next door to us, um, I don't remember his name. We just called him the Marlboro Man. Th- this guy was legitimately an ex-Marlboro man. He was one of the guys on the big posters back in the I was 60s, you know, the cowboy, the tough guy with the cigarette on the horse. And, and so he was like a retired Marlboro man. And, and, and he was just kind of, you were a little, and he was cool, but you were a little scared of him. He's just tough, gruff guy. And, um, and so I was in second grade. My, my older brother was in third grade. And we lived on like a big lot. It was like a one-acre lot and a big field behind us. So um, big fences up between, you know, the houses and stuff. Well, one day, my brother Mark and I, we decided to go out, and we had a trampoline in our backyard, so we're jumping on the trampoline, and we start going, man, it's hot out here, we should take our shirts off, so we take our shirts off, and, you know, I don't know how it got to it, but I think it was really hot, because pretty soon, like, we're down to our, our you know, superhero kind of through the looms um, underwear, and we're jumping, we're just having a grand time, we're like, this is awesome, this is so much fun, and my brother, in his third grade wisdom, knew that we should, like, stop the derobing, you know, at the Fruit of the Looms, but I was in second grade, so I'm like, no, wait, we gotta be free, man, so, you know, next thing you know, you know, they're, they're on the grass, and we're jumping, well, we've got big six-foot fences, but the Marlboro man, uh, you know, eventually sees this, like, underwear third grader and his naked little second grade brother flying up over the fence, screaming, I'm sure, going up and down. Well, pretty soon he jumps, like, on top of the fence, and he just yells at us. You know, that's not, like, Marlboro men are not okay with that sort of thing going on. Naked. So he's just yelling, and we're freaked out. We jump down on our trampoline, and he leaves. We're like, oh, we got to get inside. Well, my parents were gone at the time. That's why we were out there doing that, I'm sure. So we run inside the house, and we're just panicked, like, okay, how do we, you know, we got to cover this up. You know, what are we going to do? Well, then there's a, a knock on the door. We're like, oh, it's the Marlboro man. He's there. So I think we got dressed. We put clothes on, you know, kind of walked through. We're like, what's up? What's going on? And so, and he's mad. I mean, he's just like, I come here to retire, and this is the kind of stuff I have to deal with, you know, next door. So he goes, I want to talk to your parents. Where are they? You know, and I'm not dumb. So I go, I go, they're on a vacation. They won't be back for days and days, you know, a long time, and all this stuff. And, you know, he goes away, and I'm thinking, man, hopefully, you know, because he was really old. I'm thinking, he's probably thinking he'll be dead by the time my parents get back, so he'll just drop this and, and that sort of thing. So, so not, you know, not always the best experience with neighbors. My wife, Kristen, she always talks about growing up. Her, her neighborhood scenario was her home backed up to, like, all these other homes' backyards. And they didn't have fences. And they all had kids the same age. And all the kids are out there running around and they're playing all the time back there. And the parents are like best friends and they're hanging out. And yeah, I'm pretty much the reason, like I ruined the possibility of my parents having that kind of a neighbor, you know, relationship. We had to move a lot. I'll tell you that. No, not really. But when you think of neighbor, a lot of different pictures come to mind as far as what, what that's like. There's a, there was a book that was co-written by a guy named Dave Runyon. Um, and the title of the book is The Art of Neighboring. Isn't that a great title? The Art of Neighboring. The reason he and his co-author wrote the book is because of an experience they had. He uh, was in a group of kind of some church leaders, some pastors, and they went to the mayor of their city, and, and they just said to him, hey, like, what would, um, if you could kind of wave a magic wand and just sort of do something in, in this city to like kind of fix a lot of the problems, if there was kind of one thing that you could just dream for, 
Like, what would it be? What, what would make this city a better place? And what was really interesting is the mayor said, well, actually, it's, it's almost embarrassingly simple. This was his language. He said, the single biggest factor that helps a city flourish is when it has a sufficient number of really good neighbors. He said, the biggest difference maker for a city is, he said, strong neighborhoods with a sufficient number of really good neighbors. Because he said, see, what happens, the mayor went on, he says, when there are like really good neighbors, he said, things just start kind of naturally happening. And he gave some examples. He said, you know, the elderly are watched out for. At-risk youth aren't quite as at-risk as they once were. He said, crime goes way down. People start caring for their homes and their yards a little better, which actually increases the value of neighborhoods and homes. He said isolated people don't feel that isolated anymore because they're being connected with, they're being cared for. He says many of the problems in the city would just be eliminated or at least reduced a ton if we had a sufficient number of really good, healthy neighbors. And he went on to say, you know, people are always calling me as the mayor and saying, hey, you know, what about this program? You know, let's try this program. Let's try that program. And he said, you know, sometimes, sometimes we do. Sometimes we try a new, a new program. But he said, you know, funding eventually stops for the program. Or we can't find a good, healthy leader, you know, to take care of it. And, uh, and it stops. But he made this statement. I thought this was so cool. He said, it, it turns out relationship always trumps programs. Isn't that cool? relationship the mayor said always trumps programs and he said if you as the church and, and he wasn't a part of the church he said if you as a church really want to make a difference maybe you could start some sort of a neighboring ministry thing this he said this is just my advice this is this is a mayor of a city talking to a group of pastors and church leaders about what would make the biggest difference in their city do you think it's possible you think it's possible that, that Jesus might have actually given us a strategy about how to impact our world? You think he might have actually said something about this? That maybe, maybe he kind of got some of these pieces. Read with me. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to uh, the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be reading the, this, this parable. We're in the story series of this parable series. And in Luke chapter 10... Verse 25, I just want to read through 29, and we'll stop there, and then we'll come back to it. Verse 25, Luke tells us, On one occasion, an expert in the law, this is the, the, the Bible, the Torah, expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With all your, I'm sorry, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, when we think about the idea of a, of a lawyer, this isn't the kind of secular legal understanding of lawyer in our context. This is a person who would be an expert in the Torah, in, in, the, in the Old Testament book, specifically the first five. He would be able to parse them, understand them to, to come up with uh, answers to some of the difficult questions of what does this mean? How do we apply this in our life? So he's, he's understood in that kind of way in, in the culture. And Luke tells us there's sort of an odd situation here because he said he stood up to ask. Now, in Middle East culture, the teacher sits and the student stands. 
Okay? So it says he stood up to ask him a question. So he's, he's sort of posturing as a position of humility, a picture of I want to learn from you. But what Luke tells us is motives are kind of he wants to test him. That's the idea of kind of like find, find if, if Jesus is missing something. Maybe to get some information so later, if his enemies wanted to come back, they could have some evidence to say, see this guy, he's, he's, uh, he's directing people away from Torah, from Scripture. And he's telling them to follow himself, but, but he's not being faithful to Scripture in some way. And so the, the lawyer's question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, this kind of discussion went on all the time. We have records of rabbis asking these questions. Because what he's getting down to is, what's the basics? If, if I were to distill this thing, I mean, it's, Scripture is huge. You've got Torah, you've got, you know, the Jews say the 613 laws in the Old Testament. If you were to distill it down, like, what is at the core? What is at the essence of it? This sort of thing, again, went on constantly. And in keeping with good, common Jewish dialogue, Jewish responds to the lawyer, and he asks, well, what do you think about it? How do you read Scripture? How do you understand it? And in verse 26, he says, uh, Jesus asks him the question, what's written in the law? How do you understand it? Verse 27, the lawyer responds to this question, question set up with a summary. Now, he, he's summarizing, possibly, maybe, maybe he had heard Jesus, because Jesus had communicated this earlier. Jesus was a public teacher. And he seems to be summarizing what Jesus, how Jesus had summarized the law, kind of distilled it or boil it down before, when um, he says, love God, heart, soul, mind, strength, everything. Love your, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice the two pieces in this sort of distillment or summary. Love God and then love neighbor. Now, the commandment to love neighbor comes first in Scripture. It comes from Leviticus 19.18. We'll read that in just a second here, where they're told, love your neighbor as yourself. And then it, it, it goes on this context in the book of Leviticus to explain it. And then he gets the, the love God with everything from uh, a book that comes after that, Deuteronomy 6.5, is where the commandment to love God with all of one's being comes from. Now, normally you would expect these to come in sequence of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus in, in their canonical sequence, but they're, they're switched. And it's actually the switching, the sequence of how he puts them is very important. Um, here's one reason. It's, our experience tells us that it's very difficult to love another person unless your, your own heart is, is kind of first filled up. If you're sort of empty, needy, it's really hard to love other people, right? We've probably experienced that before. And this is this idea that unless I... Unless I first, my heart is sort of first filled by the love of God and transformed by God's love, my ability to extend any sort of realistic, sustained acts of love toward others is going to be deeply frustrated. Um, here's why. If your motivation to love someone is based on them responding to that act of love in an appropriate way, it's going to die, right? How many of you have... have uh, done something for someone else, an act of service, maybe words of encouragement, a note, you've done something, and the person, maybe like they, you know, they misunderstood your motives, and instead of responding with gratitude, it's just a sort of hostility, right? Well, if, if my motivation to keep being loving is based on a good response, eventually what's going to happen? Well, I'm, I'm going to get frustrated, right? I'm, I'm going to say, forget this, it's too difficult, and I, and I pull back, I stop loving, 
And that's the whole point of, of Jesus putting these two together in the right sequence, saying, first, it's love God. That's, that's kind of where you get filled up. That's, that's the place where you, where you find your buoyancy. And then out of that, you can love others. Because see, here's the thing. If, if I can learn to love someone, not based on the response I get, but out of this deep gratitude to God, well, then I can keep doing it even when they respond in a way that, that I go, oh, that wasn't what I was looking for. You know, that hurts. That's not what I wanted. Anyway. So in summary, the lawyer asks what he has to do to inherit eternal life. Common Jewish question. The lawyer quotes Jesus' synopsis. Love God perfectly, you know, love others. And Jesus' basic response is, great, follow your own advice. Live up to these standards. To inherit eternal life, you have to consistently practice unqualified love for God and his neighbor. Now, some people would look at this and go, okay, so is Jesus teaching like salvation by works, like if you do enough things? No, no, no. Because as Paul points out later, it's not that the law is a problem. It's that our hearts are broken and we can never keep up to it. The law is not, the law is not broken. We're broken. The law is good and it's great. We can never meet that standard because the standard is perfect love. So think about this paraphrase. This is where he's leading the lawyer. Okay? Lawyer says, what must I do to be saved? Think about it like this. Jesus says, well, jump over a hundred foot wall. Now, right there, the lawyer should go, I'm asking the wrong question. <laughs> right? I, I need to regroup. I need to figure out the right question. But the lawyer doesn't do that. Instead, he goes, okay, let me, let me just rephrase. Uh, how about, I know, I'll get definitions. Okay, That'll, okay. If, if I understand what you're talking about, maybe I can get over this wall that you're, that you're speaking of here. So he says, okay, that's fine. Love God. Okay, I get that. That means obey the law. Got it. Uh, love neighbor. Okay, definitions. What, what is, who is my neighbor, right? We live in a culture where sometimes things come down to what does the word is mean, right? I mean, this is the human heart. This is, this is sin in the human heart is to, is to parse and try to define and clarify and say, well, what, what specifically do you mean by is? Who is my neighbor? Now, remember the lawyer went to Leviticus 19.18 when he said, love, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, let me read that to you. Leviticus 19.18. We're told, the Israelites are told, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against, listen to this, anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's only Jews, right? You know, that's, that's all. The problem is a few verses later, about five verses later, verse uh, 33. Uh, when, this is what it says. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. And you, uh, as you were foreigners in Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Now, here's my thought. Why didn't Jesus just go, hey, read the verse in context, dude? Right? You didn't finish the verse. Because sometimes he does that kind of stuff. He says, you didn't read correctly. Why didn't he just tell him to go back and read the whole thing? Because doesn't this seem to be saying, well, the foreigner who resides with you, he's a neighbor too. So who's your neighbor? It's him and that guy. Here's why I think Jesus did not do that. Because he knows... That sin in the human heart is a master at rationalization. Let me give you an example. Let's say he did that, and so the lawyer goes, okay, he goes home and he says, let's see, the foreigner residing among you. 
well, let's see, this guy over here isn't technically residing among me because he's kind of over... You see how this works? Rationalization happens constantly. And Jesus knows that's where this guy is going because he already said, well, what do you mean by neighbor? It's this guy in that case. What do you mean by that guy? This thing will go on forever and ever, he realizes really quickly, because sin in the human heart will seek loopholes. How can I possibly do this and not technically be wrong, but still do what I want? (laughs) He knows the human heart so well. So instead, Jesus takes the route of weaving a story to get past those watchful dragons, to get past those places of sin in our lives, which rationalize and let us have loopholes and let us have out so we can, at the end of the day, do what we want. Verse 30 of this passage In reply, Jesus said, and man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, for he had compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil, wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus is done with the story, and he turns back to the guy. And he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor, since we're being so technical and trying to define that, which one was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replies, still not being able to actually say the name, Samaritan, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, we we can quickly lose the impact of the story, and a lot of you will already know this, but the idea of a good Samaritan, which is what we call the story later, is is about the biggest oxymoron that you could come up with. It's sort of a joke. It's like jumbo shrimp, okay? It's something that you just go, that that doesn't even really make sense, I mean, because we all know what Samaritans are. In this day and age, Samaritans came from, Samaritans are kind of half-Jews, not just ethnically, but religiously even. They've taken the worship of Yahweh and they've kind of perverted it enough. They came from hundreds of years ago when faithful Jews did what God told them not to do. He said, do not intermarry those of another faith. But there's a group that did. And they intermarried. And so their kids are kind of, yeah, they're Jews, but they're kind of also worshiping this. So things get, things get perverted and changed over time. And these are, the, these, are their, these are their descendants. And so they still recognize the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch or the Torah. Um, but the big issue is where do we worship God? That was a big, I mean, God had answered real clearly in Jerusalem, you know, in the temple. That's why to this day, Jews go to the Western Wall, the only thing that's remaining of the temple, because that's the place. That they can't even sacrifice, but they can at least worship him there. There's something holy and sitting Don't He said, don't worship me anywhere else. It has to be this one pinpoint location. Well, they had, a, they had set up a different location, Mount Gerizim. And they said, no, that's where we can worship God. 
That's, that's the correct place. And this, this ongoing sort of battle, and it's not just a theological feud, you have to understand. As an idea, um, about 125 years before Jesus was born, um, the, the, the temple on Mount Gerizim, so this is the Samaritan temple, Jewish army came through and wiped it out, destroyed it, okay? About four or five years before Jesus was born, some Samaritans snuck into the temple, and they took human bones and scattered them in the temple, okay? Now the temple is unclean. This is like the Hatfields and McCoys. I mean, it's truly like this deep-seated hatred and animosity, and the other, I mean, you hate them. You know, this is worse than how Broncos feel about, you know, Seahawk fans right now. This is, I mean, this is to an extreme. It really is closer to what we think of as, again, the old Hatfield-McCoys story for here in America. And so this animosity just continues. In fact, if you, if you read the Gospels understanding this, um, you'll see so often this occasional interaction with Samaritans, what a big deal it is. Do you remember the time Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and he, he's hoping that they will give him housing, lodging? In the ancient world, the, that, that value of hospitality is huge. You do that, even for ones you don't know. But they find out he's going to Jerusalem to the temple to worship, and they go, no. Right? So there's this deep-seated hatred. Now, his followers, the disciples, remember their response? They go, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and just burn these suckers? They say that. I mean, these are followers of Jesus. And like, we should probably do that, right? That'd be good, right? And he goes, no. <laughs> but this is the context. It, it is deep. It is deep-seated. It's a long history. But this is the reality. In fact, remember at one point, uh, Jesus is uh, in John chapter 8 talking to the people around him. And they say, isn't it true? You're a Samaritan. Oh, and you're demon-possessed. I mean, those are like on the equivalent, right? That's like the worst insult you could say to someone is you're a Samaritan. And it's equivalent with being demon-possessed. So Jesus brought up these examples of the priest and the Levite to show them that you will always be able to come up with rationalization for why you shouldn't necessarily extend compassion, generosity, justice, whatever it might be, to people, you will always come up with ways. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go on this. I wish we had more. Let me just kind of set it up this way. Why I think Jesus includes a couple things in his parable, and when he's writing about the man, he says, number one is he was naked, so he was stripped naked. It says he was, you know, so he's unconscious, he's half dead. Now, right, this poses problems. The two men who walked by, okay, he's a, he's a priest, another one's a Levite, there are expectations of uh, ceremonial cleanliness, okay? The ways that you can tell, are you a Jew or a Samaritan or an Egyptian or a Roman or whatever, the two primary ways is your clothing and your speech, okay? That's gone. I mean, Jesus is setting up a perfect example, showing the lawyer, here's how deep scenarios go, how you will rationalize and not help someone who's dying because you go, let's see here. He doesn't have clothes on. I can't talk to him. So I don't know if he... If he's a Jew, I would have to help him. I mean, I, I want to hold to the law, and I would do it. But I don't know if he's a Jew. I don't, I'm not even positive about that, right? Well, he's also half dead, he tells us. In Jewish law, if you touch a dead body as a priest, he's, gotta go, he's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, probably where he lived. He just got done with a couple weeks of service at the temple. He's got a, a range of time to go back up to the temple. Purification time is a week takes a while to set it up. During that time, 
He can't eat from the tithe. Uh, His family can't eat from the tithe. It's very costly. I mean, this is a major pain. If he's close to death and he touches him and soon later he dies, he's got to tear his clothing. That's expensive in this day and age. You have to go get new clothes you can't use. I mean, there are a hundred things going through the priest's mind as to why this is just too costly. This is just too much of a pain. It's not just like, oh, that person, I don't like him. It's just like, man, this this is hugely inconvenient. What it would cost me to do this. And this is exactly what the other man who comes by thinks as well. Um, So look for a minute with me at some of the qualities. Let's do this. Let's look at some of the things that that I think Jesus is. um, Remember, he's he's not answering the question that's being asked. He's helping the man to be reoriented and say, here's the question you should be asking. Let me answer the, the right question. First for you, who is the neighbor? What does, what does it look like to be a neighbor? What does it mean to fulfill the second greatest commandment that the, in all of Scripture to love others as self? What, what does that mean? What does that look like? He says, let me paint a picture. He tells a story. And there's a couple pieces that, that come out in the story and that really relate back to God. Okay, the first one, I won't write these up on the board for the sake of time, but I'll just tell you these words. The first one is compassion. Okay? If, think about this. If you were to grade God on a scale of 1 to 10 on compassion, where would you put him? How compassionate is God? You know, it's really interesting. In the Old Testament, you ever read the Old Testament? And there are, and there are a lot of these laws that are, that are kind of like, you don't really get it. I mean, they're so detailed, and sometimes you don't fully grasp, like, well, why, did it, why, were they, why was he saying that, or why could they not do this? And some of them, again, were just extreme detail application. Um, Exodus 22, there's this really interesting passage, Exodus 22, God is talking to Israel and he says, now people in this day, they could, they could borrow things, but you couldn't charge interest. Okay, that, that was outlawed in scripture, but if you did borrow something, you could put up collateral for it, because you have to be good, you know, for what you're borrowing. And oftentimes, um, he says, uh, Exodus 22, verse 26, he says, if you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, that's the collateral, listen to this, he says, Return it by sunset to him. You can go get it back tomorrow. But he says, because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has, what else can they sleep in? Isn't that interesting? How compassionate is God that if, you, if you've taken your neighbor's cloak out of collateral, that's the only thing that will keep them warm. God cares about that person sleeping, being warm at night, that they are comfortable Jesus has compassion on people as they're following him. So often he refers to, he says, we've got to feed them. And his disciples say, why? He says, because on the way home, what if they just stumble? They're so tired. He, he has care and concern about just the most basic thing. How about justice? We talked about compassion. Justice. We all want justice, don't we? Especially when we feel like we've been treated unjustly. One thing that's really interesting about Israel um, in the ancient world, Israel was the only nation that, to this degree, attached justice, and by justice I'm meaning ethical requirements of how you treat others, and religion. Okay? You've got the Babylonians, they've got Marduk, God, you've got the Greeks, they've got Zeus. But, but none of them quite take religion and connect it to social justice across the board. And see, here's why. Who's the son of God? Well, if, if you're one of these pagan 
cultures, you know, Egyptian or Greece or Babylonian, somewhere in Mesopotamia, you'd say it's the king. The king is the son of God. He's, a, he's an image bearer of God. So laws apply to him. I have to serve him. I have to do these sorts of things. Everyone else is sort of ants, okay? You know, you know we're, we're chess pieces. We're pawns. So, so laws of justice apply to him and then those that he kind of likes. All of a sudden, these people come along, the Israelites, and they tell a story, and they say, in the beginning, God created humanity. And humanity was made in the image of God. And so all of these expectations of justice are expected to go to every image bearer of God. That was unheard of. Totally unheard of in this world. Then God even sends prophets, something that there isn't quite the equivalent for in any other religion. And these prophets aren't just... You know, people who say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this to you, I'm going to do that to you. They would come with a message like, you're mistreating those, the pawns, the chess people. You're mistreating them. The book of Amos, there's this constant refrain of, you know, for three sins for, or, or for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because how you have sold people even for the price of a sandal, of a shoe. God cares about even those. Justice. Proverbs 16:11. Honest scales and balances belong to the Lord. Do you hear that? When you go to the store and you pay, God cares about that. God cares about how much you charge someone. Is it fair market value? God says, I care a heck of a lot about it. You better be doing it right. God cares about justice. And God hates injustice. Generosity. Um, Now, generosity, we we think of money, which is, I think, a huge piece. Jesus goes there oftentimes. How, how, how generous are we with our, with our finances? But, but generosity also extends to just what we offer someone else. Time, might be money, might be attention. I want you to um, watch this short video. This is a video of uh, Olivet Middle School in Michigan. Their football team, uh, there, there was a learning disabled kid. Some of you might have seen this story here recently. Uh, and this kid was kind of on the periphery. He was sort of on the outside. And the football team conspired for weeks for one play in a game. Watch this. Watch this clip here. We end tonight with the football play of the month. It was executed with amazing precision by the Eagles, the Olivet Eagles. Steve Hartman has the play and the post-game analysis on the road. Between classes, they schemed and conspired. For weeks, the football players here at Olivet Middle School in Olivet, Michigan, secretly planned their remarkable play. Did anybody go, this is a crazy idea? No, everyone was in on it. But, like, the coaches didn't know anything about it. We were, like, going behind their back. I've just never heard of a team coming up with a plan to not score. It's just like to make someone's day, make someone's week, just make them happy. The play, which was two plays actually, happened at a home game earlier this month. The first part of their plan was to try to get as close to the goal line as possible without scoring, even if it meant taking a dive on the one-yard line, which it did. The crowd was not happy. Quarterback Parker Smith. But us kids knew, hey, we got this. This is our time. This is Keith's time. 
Keith Orr is the little kid in the brown jacket. He's learning disabled, struggles with boundaries, but in the sweetest possible way. Because of his special nature, it's no surprise that Keith embraces his fellow football players. What is surprising is how they have embraced him. Hello. We thought it'd be cool to do something for him. Because we really wanted to prove that he was part of our team and he meant a lot to us. Nothing can really explain getting a touchdown when you've never had one before. Which brings us to part two of their play. If you didn't see Keith, it's because they were so protective of him. But he was in the middle of that rush. And when you crossed the goal line, what was that like? Awesome. <laughs> it was like, did he just score a touchdown? Get your camera out. <laughs> like, ah, oh, then I can't. Keith's parents, Carrie and Jim, almost missed the moment, but they got the significance. Somebody's always going to have his back from now until the day he graduates. She's right. When the football team decides you're cool, pretty much everyone follows suit. Today, Keith is a new kid, although by no means was he the only one who was profoundly changed. What was it like for you? It was like, like once I saw him going, I was smiling like about like here. Wide receiver Justice Miller. Like nothing could wipe that smile off my face. Why did it affect you so much? Because like he's never been like cool or popular and he went from being like pretty much a nobody to making everyone's day. Justice admits the play wasn't his idea. I would have not really thought about that. He says it never crossed his mind to give Keith any glory. Well, I kind of went from being somebody like mostly cared about myself and my friends to caring about everyone and trying to make everyone's day in everyone's life. Which may just make that touchdown the most successful football play of all time. Steve Hartman, On the Road, in Olivet, Michigan. Wow. is that cool? Yeah. How, how generous is God? You know, Back to that passage that we looked at a little while ago in the book of Exodus. God, in, a, in another really practical way, in Exodus 23, he says, If you come across your enemy's donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. You know, how many, that's your enemy. And most of us would be like, oh, choo, choo, keep going, go on, go on, you know, <laughs> beat it. Right? The next verse, he says, If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, fallen down under its load. Do not leave it there. Be sure to help them up. Pick up the donkey stuff, carry it yourself, and then pull the donkey back to the guy who hates you, that person who can't stand you. How generous is God? And just like that video, the ripple effects of, of, of being generous go on beyond that mere act. Listen to how generous God is. John 3.16. You know it? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world that he gave the most valuable thing in all of history. Love does this neighboring gives things that are of value. You look at the Samaritan, Jesus' point when he talks about all the things he did, remember it says, you know, he poured oil on it and then he bandaged it and he, he talks, all, he basically put himself out there. 
And then he takes the guy to the place. He, puts up, he gives him two denarii, which is enough money to cover the guy for a week or maybe two weeks. And, and then he pledges. He says, anything else that he incurs while I'm gone. Also, we should remember that innkeepers were notorious for, for being crooked in this day and age. Anything else he incurs, I'll pay when I come back. This is a day and age where if you had a debt you couldn't pay, you went to jail. The Samaritan is putting himself in a, in a radical place of weakness using everything he has at the moment, and then even pledging, putting himself in a place of vulnerability in the future. It's this, it's this radical picture of doing things. I was talking to Pastor Reza this last week, and he was telling me about something that they're doing out at Timberline, uh, Windsor. The church donates to um, a couple different schools to help pay for uh, kids who qualify for free or reduced lunches. Well, there, there were a group of people out there who started saying, well, Okay, you know, they've got lunches in the day. That's good. And on the week, but like, what about Saturday and Sunday? Like, do you think they've got enough food? And, and so they kind of started looking into it, and they realized, no, there's actually a real need for that. And so on Thursdays, they get together out at Timberline Windsor, and they make these, these sack lunches, and they give them to those kids. So Saturday and Sunday, they have food. Or I was, uh, I was talking to uh, Pastor Tim, our youth pastor, and he was telling me about one of the, one of the girls, Lauren Schneider. She's 16 years old. Um, and uh, she, about eight years ago, she was in the hospital for a long period of time, for like five, six weeks, and she said, man, I remember being in the hospital, I remember just feeling so kind of alone, I remember someone gave me a teddy bear, and that kind of like made me feel better, and so, and so Lauren said, I wonder what I could do, like I wonder if I could do something, and so what she did is she started getting together this really colorful, soft material, and um, started making these plush pillow pets that, that she calls med bugs, not a great name, med bugs, and 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 she makes them for for these kids who who are battling significant illnesses and says maybe 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 I can help. And to this day, right now, she's spent about two thousand hours and a lot of her own money making three hundred med bugs, because in her words, I like knowing that I'll help a kid feel better. See, the God we serve. And the reason in the Old Testament that it constantly says, do this, treat the foreigner this way, notice how many times it says, be compassionate. At the end, it always says, because you were a foreigner and I brought you out of the land. Or it'll say, be compassionate, for I am the Lord your God. What he's saying is, the place you get your level of how do you treat others is because of me. I am justice. I am goodness. I am generosity. I am mercy. And the ultimate picture of the Good Samaritan is Jesus. Someone who was despised, as the Samaritan was. Someone who put himself at great risk. Someone who gave all in order that my heart could be so transformed that I could go to people who hate me or people who I do not particularly care for. And I could show them radical justice. I could show them radical love. And not live at the place where I'm merely looking, what's required? What do I have to do? What's, what's bottom line? What can I do in that way? This is the Jesus that we serve. And what's so crazy is Jesus took this method, this strategy, and he said, I'm going to transform the world with it. Now, go back in time. Put yourself in a time machine 2,000 years ago. You're standing there listening to this little, this Jewish rabbi in enemy-occupied Israel and his little ragtag band of, you know, 12, 11 followers. Who would you put your money on, them or Rome? 
I love it. John Ortberg says, well, think about it this way. 2,000 years later, we give our, ki- our kids names like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and we name our dogs names like Caesar and Nero. This is the strategy that overcame the world. And Jesus tells us this is the strategy that will overcome your household. It's a strategy that will overcome your workplace. It's a strategy that will overcome your church. So many different things. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we take a moment, not, first not to pray for ourselves, especially at a moment like this, but God, we, we pray for our neighbors, people that, that you have put into our lives. Maybe it's that, um, maybe it's that elderly person that, that is kind of on our mind right now as we're, as we're thinking. Maybe it's that single parent who is just exhausted trying to take care of those kids. Maybe it's that person who's, who's going through a divorce or, or struggling in some way that you know, we don't even quite know about. We're not even aware of. God, would you help us to be agents of your love? God, would you show us how we can love in such a way that your kingdom would come here and now in hearts and minds? And God, would you transform our own hearts? Lord, may, may we be the kind of people who are vulnerable enough to say, I'm broken, I don't have it all together, I know I can't get over that hundred foot wall. I can't love you perfectly, God, and I certainly am not consistently loving others perfectly. And may we seek your grace so that we would have that, that buoyancy of life for the relationships that you have placed us in in which you call us to, to demonstrate just practical, self-sacrificing love, the kind of love that we see reflected in our God. And we're so grateful for that, Lord. Thank you for this community here. God, what would it be like if just those of us sitting here in this room tonight, if we really became neighbors in this sense, in in the way Jesus defined neighbor, to the people who are our neighbors that we come in contact with, God, you could do something radical. You've done it before, and we trust you that you will continue to with the power of of your Holy Spirit. And we pray it in your Son's powerful name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, part of being neighborly is we just kind of like to hang out together as a community. So hit, hit the back for coffee and cookies. And I think we've got something a little different from, some, from the previous nights. Go get kids if you've got them. Bring them back and let them clear up the table for us, okay? Hey, we'll see you guys this weekend. Thanks for being here tonight.